Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 21. My name is Dominic, and my co-host's name is Janice, and you will hear from him a little later. We are happy to have Mr. Nicholas Schreck on the show today. If you think you know Nicholas, you may be surprised by what you hear today. Acclaimed by Austria's Evolver magazine as already a legend in his lifetime, singer-songwriter, author, and filmmaker Nicholas Schreck's initiatory application of music, ritual, and theater formally began in 1984 when he returned to the West from a life-changing spiritual pilgrimage in Egypt to found the shape-shifting musical ensemble Radio Werewolf, a nine-year sonic magic operation which concluded in 1993. After pioneering early Los Angeles Gothic and Death Rock with the band's first incarnation, Radio Werewolf's European phase was hailed by Christopher Walton of the band Endura for simultaneously preempting and giving birth to the dark ambient and ritual industrial scene of the 90s. Before embarking on his current solo career, Shrek has previously collaborated musically with Xena, John Murphy, Kingdom of Heaven, and Sir Christopher Lee, whose first album he produced. Shrek's books include The Manson File, Myth and Reality of an Outlaw Shaman, Demons of the Flesh, The Complete Guide to Left-Hand Path Sex Magic, written with his then-wife Zena Shrek, The Satanic Screen, and Flowers from Hell. He is the director of the 1989 documentary Charles Manson Superstar, and has appeared in several films including Mortuary Academy and Usher. His latest recording, The Illusionist, was released in August on the Records Ad Nauseum label. We discussed some really interesting topics with Nicholas, including the pitfalls of a culture, the nature of magic, his experiences with tantric Buddhism, uh, among other things. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Before we jump into the show, just a reminder, we do have a Patreon, and the reason for that is to hopefully get the show self-sustainable. If you're interested in helping us continue doing the work that we are doing, then feel free to head on over to Patreon and help support us. Thank you to our patrons for the continued support. It means a lot. One thing to note, towards the end of the conversation, I had to jump off and do some family stuff. I apologize, Nicholas, for that. I really wish I could have stayed and chatted a little bit longer. Um, I think Janice did an awesome job keeping things going and... It turned out really well. As always, we dedicate this episode to Hermes, and we distribute freely the merits we have accumulated doing this work to all beings for our mutual benefit. Okay, I am excited to introduce Mr. Nicholas Schreck to the show today. Thank you so much, Mr. Schreck, for making time for us, and welcome to the show. 
It's my pleasure. I'm excited to be introduced by you. And uh, you can call me Nicholas. We don't have to stand on ceremony, so to speak. <laughs> okay, good to know. Thank you, Nicholas. And we are also joined by Janice. Janice, how are you? I'm very well, looking both ways, as usual, before I cross the crossroads. Excellent. Um, and so today we are, well, in general, we're really interested here on the show in the intersection of magic and art. And this seems to be a major interest of yours as well, Nicholas. And so we thought this would be, you'd be a great guest. So we will definitely get into that topic. You've been talking lately a lot about the past few years, uh, sonic magic, which is really what we'd, we'd love to hear about. But mm -hmm. um, I think before we get too deep into that, people may know, may know of you, um, kind of infamous. I think it would be really interesting to, to first tackle the subject of how you, um, the man you are today, uh, and how you transitioned into into uh, what you're talking about today and who you are, as opposed to where you were maybe 20, 30 years ago. Right. Well, I think it's important to put this in context, is when you say I've lately been discussing sonic magic, really the beginning of my public career was based on this experience, which we can discuss a bit later, that I had in Egypt, uh, in in Karnak in the temple there, and um, it had to do with it with an awareness and an awakening of sonic magic, and of course Radio Werewolf specifically used that phrase, and in all of the recordings and public performances of Radio Werewolf, they were uh, they, that was like my university study in sonic magic. That was my field taking it into the field and seeing that it worked and it, and it did uh, sort of like a Frankenstein's monster. It worked better than I even knew it would. So sonic magic has really been the fundament of my whole public career. And it's something that goes back, you know, into the earliest part of my life. So the only difference is that I, in the eighties and nineties, I was loath to explain anything to the public because I always felt that art and music should be interpreted by the listener and the experiencer rather than have the artist or musician interpret it for you. Mm -hmm. And that led to major misunderstandings, which in a way is part of the art because music doesn't exist in a void. You put music out there and there's an echo. And part of, part of what music is is the reaction of those who listen to it. So I allowed a lot of misunderstandings and rumors and insane conspiracy theories to form. And of course, I could have cleared them up by making logical explanations or defenses, but I chose never to do that. And uh, I took a more aristocratic point of view and, and let you know the commoners think what they will. And in, in recent years, Actually, the reason I've chosen to spoke, speak about sonic magic and everything that I have done spiritually more is not for a good reason. It's because in this Kali Yuga, this age of degeneration that we're living in, to put it quite bluntly, people's intelligence and their education level and their ability to understand anything has diminished so greatly 
even since the 1980s, which was not exactly the golden age of Athens either, but compared, <laughs> compared, compared to that, you know, we're, we are living truly in the idiocracy to use the common term. So, and this, and this was prophesied by the Buddha and by other, and also in Hindu masters predicted and prophesied that in the Kali Yuga, spiritual understanding would diminish so greatly that you would, you know, things would have to be explained that humanity once understood instinctively. So far from in the 21st century, having reached some great technological plateau of uh, human accomplishment, technologically we've advanced. Spiritually, we have devolved almost beyond imagination from I probably from the first caveman had a deeper spiritual understanding than the average human being in in 2019. So that's why I have gone out of my way to explain what what the foundation of my work is. But just to make that clear, it has never changed. Maybe mm. the maybe the techniques and the principle have changed, but from the very beginning, I was literally inspired by an act of sonic magic. Uh, which I believe was as as insane as it will sound to secular rationalists, a you know a communication with a divine being that expressed itself through sound. And even before that, sound has been the key to most of my mystical and spiritual landmark experiences, the things that transformed me and made me what I am. So but yes, I have, in recent years, quite deliberately, since 2014, when I returned quite actively to music with a sonic magic ritual that I performed in Dresden with the late John Murphy, which was an evocation of the feminine wisdom, of the feminine principle, the eternal feminine, um, I have felt it necessary to augment my concerts with some sort of logical, rational explanation. So I've done several lectures in Germany about sonic magic at the Wave Gothic Treffen, at the Hole in Berlin, which actually that is online on my YouTube channel so people can hear it and get a deeper idea than we may be able to get into today. So I think that answers that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would highly recommend people go and, and listen to that recording. It's it's really fascinating. And, and yeah, I hope we can get into a lot of the stuff that you talked about there. Um, and, and it is interesting what you were mentioning about uh, the de-evolution de of uh, spirituality. It's really paradoxical because we have so much more access to information. It's, it's really strange that we're moving in this kind of negative direction. Right. Well, I, th I think that's because the overflow, well, it's, it, yes, it's information. But unfortunately, since the advent of the Internet in the 90s, most of what you're getting is hysterical, paranoid disinformation mm. rather than, you know, because what what people look at on the Internet is what is controversial, what is sensational or what they the problem, as we discussed briefly before the show, that algorithms show you what you're interested in. They don't show you what you need to know. They show you what the way the system is set up is geared to show you what they already think you will buy. So this is no way to learn anything. And as the Sufi teacher, who's somewhat problematic, but who, who 
wrote some interesting things. Idria Shah wrote a book many years ago called Learning How to Learn. And he said that that was the specific requirement for spiritual understanding. And it's probably true for any subject. The problem that you're addressing here is most people today, do they have never learned how to learn. How do you discern what is true and what is propaganda? How can you tell what is a scam or, you know, some kind of pyramid scheme, all the various Scientologies and theosophies and churches of this and temples of that that are out there? How do you, you know, and, and when people have a deep emotional need to find something to believe in, rather than using the scientific method, they go by emotion. And this is, this is why, unfortunately, when it comes to metaphysics, mysticism, and especially magic, which is, you know, unfortunately a cesspool of misinformation if you've got it from the internet. And in fact, always has been going back to the 19th century, because a lot of the people who are attracted to publicizing the art of magic have been sociopaths, narcissists, um, you know, who would go out there and publicly talk about it, unfortunately, have not been people of the best character. Um, so that has the problem is a lot of what is put out about mysticism is in magic is somebody with an axe to grind or some somebody pushing some sales technique or propaganda and maybe the the clearest sign of the degradation and decadence of magic in the 21st century is the paradoxically many people would think this is an some sort of progress or an improvement but I'm sure you're aware of the proliferation of interest in manifesting things or doing affirmations to make things happen. I don't know how popular that is in America, but in Europe, it's becoming sort of a, a subsect of magic, like a kindergarten version of magic. Are you aware of that whole phenomenon? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's virulent. And it's inherently materialistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, this whole thing, you know, to learn the art of genuine magic, and even the word magic is unfortunate because it is so tainted by wrong ideas. It carries so much false baggage. It's very difficult for people to get beyond all of the projections they put on the word magic. But I'm using it in the strictest sense of the word in ancient terms. The problem with the popular acceptance of sort of new age magic light um, solutions to sorcery is that, as you said, they're completely materialistic. They are, they are for people who are essentially materialists who think they can use a little spiritual trick to obtain what our consumer capitalist culture teaches us is important to get what we want. So basically this, I, I think this, even I used to rail against the damage that things like Talima and Aleister Crowley, all of the false ideas that he put across as one of the main problems with human beings in the contemporary world, understanding magic. Now I think that, has been superseded by this popularity of affirmations and manifestation, which is, as Chagyam Trungpa 
coined the phrase spiritual materialism. Yes. Why is it a problem? Is because it's 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 refusing to admit that there are greater forces in the cosmos than humanity, and it's a very arrogant approach to magic, assuming that your wish alone can make something happen. It's it's a completely childish understanding of how the mind works and of how magic works. So it's it's the height of egotism to think that if you wish something enough, it will happen, and that that is all there is to magic. Of course, it's much deeper than that, and it requires a much more sophisticated understanding of how the mind interacts with matter, and in fact, that there's actually no difference between mind and matter. So... Yeah, I just I think it's important to take a critical stance on on the things that are obstacles to understanding of magic, and that's certainly one of them. I mean, I I don't know. There's a whole plethora of New Ageish books uh, that came out in the '90s, and that they, they, they've just mutated into this very simple idea that if you wish strongly enough, it will happen, without exploring what the actual nature of reality is which is much more complicated than that. And, and, and what happens is then these, the souls or minds of these people become further drawn into material existence and the spiritual senses become further obscured uh, by, by illusion that's created by their misapplication of um, really mad, magic on a very base and gross level, like you're saying. And it, it's kind of a travesty and, um, it's a it's a strange situation because some of the loudest voices too are voices that are selling something, which is I guess from time immemorial the way it's been. But I think that's also why we need the counterbalance of someone such as yourself, uh, who's who's speaking in this deeper way, who's not seeking to acquire something or sell something from others but rather to draw attention to the essential nature of things because what's happening in my opinion is that this materialization this quote-unquote manifestation it causes a contraction of consciousness and magic comes from the you know indo in indo-persian root maga which really is related to expansion of consciousness. exactly and and also from the Indo-European word of, of Maga, which comes into German as Mach, to make happen, to, to Macht, power, and Mach, to make happen. And then it becomes from the Teutonic roots into English of make in English. So, yeah, it's it's a very ancient thing that goes back to Persia. And, of course, that's just the word for it. Beyond the word is the reality. So, yes, I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying, it's it's a denigration. But that, I would say my approach to magic, as far as you're saying, as far as me being a counterbalance to the louder voices pushing things like very simple solutions like manifestation and affirmation, um, I take the approach, for instance, with, during the LSD revolution, Timothy Leary went out there to the streets and promoted that, you know, every moron should take LSD and they would become illuminated. And Aldous Huxley, on the other hand, I don't remember the exact phrase, but he recommended in the early days of the psychedelic revolution that 
all research about LSD should be, he said something like confined to the obscurity of scholarly journals. And I tend to agree with that. I think mag magic is not for everybody. Sorcery, I mean, if it, for, for a mentally unbalanced and egotistical person, it's a disaster to even begin introducing them to magic as we can look at the history of many so-called, and as you say, some of the loudest voices in the magical field in the 20th century and 19th century were, were just rampant egotists using magic uh, to blow their own horn. Um, so that, so I, I believe in a sense, again, there, there's a Buddhist and a Sufi saying because spiritual wisdom very often formulates the same truths is that the secret protects itself. So all these loud voices can sell their snake oil versions of magic, but the real thing is impervious to egotistical people. You, you can't get to real magic if you approach it with totally impure intentions. So it protects itself. You, you will, you'll just be playing with fire and it will burn you. And, you know, so I, I don't also feel like a, a need to crusade against those things. My, my approach is more if people are seriously interested in what reality is, which is ultimately what magic can teach you, then they will find the reality. If, if they're interested in the baubles and bangles and glossy sales techniques of, of contemporary occultism, then they will get lost in that. And in a way, that's the way it's meant to be. That is the initiatory test they have to go through, and and it's it's a how it's how you separate the wheat from the chaff. The ignorant, in the true sense of the word, I don't mean stupid, but just lacking in information, ignorant will be drawn to big promises. They will be drawn to spells that require no patience. You know, to here here's the magic bean. And it will work. Put this on, stand upside down and say three words on Tuesday and it will happen. That's, you know, that's very simple and easy to understand. It doesn't require facing your own inner world. It's, it's all looking at outer sensory attractions. So it's very simplistic. Very interesting point. And yeah, a lot of people today I see are trying to apply magic as if it were a hard science um, using the scientific method. And like you said, all you have to do is say these three words and you can be a, you can be a narcissist, you can be uh, totally clouded by ignorance and it'll work because those three words are just like a, a computer you're plugging in this program and it's just automatic. Um, mm -hmm. Playing devil's advocate for a second, um, from... Even ancient times, it's magicians have been using magic for material gain. So you can see stuff from the early first, second century and beyond. Um, mm -hmm. Magicians helping their communities with kind of mundane problems, you know, uh, break up mm -hmm. him and her, uh, bring me together with this woman, uh, bring me fortunes. Right. Um, so... So how do you see that in context of what we're saying here? Well, I, I, I should make it clear. I'm not, I'm not waving a self-righteous finger at using magic to gain material results. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, that, I mean, that, that's, 
the problem is that when that's all that people do, when they just use it like a shopping list and they Got are it. abusing a, a much deeper power. I mean, it's, we have so lost connection with the spiritual world. I think it's maybe important to pause to even say, what is the difference between the material world and the spiritual world? There's so much misunderstanding of that. And even people who say they're interested in magic, people who have wasted years of their life pursuing the various dead ends and gutters of the modern magical world, they don't really seem to comprehend the spiritual world is where everything comes from, that this material world is merely a lower adumbration of the spiritual world. Mm. They, they really think that it's just... The word is just so misused. It it, it needs to be understood. What does metaphysical mean? What does spiritual mean? I believe most people who dabble in the occult really don't believe that there is a non-material world. I think they play act with it. But let's take, for instance, true respect and understanding of what it would mean to have communication with a deity, for instance, The way that magicians treat that is, or not not all of them, but many, is so trivial. Like it's like it's like it's just ordering a product. You know, if you, it's it's that you need to put time, and and again, it requires the fundamental thing that I see so many people who play act with magic. They lack patience. They want immediate results, and they want the results to be exactly as their ego imagines the result would be rather than accepting that reality is not accordant to to our ego, that it, that it has its own rules and laws. So I would say this is the key problem, and I think it's first important to address what the obstacles are before we get into the solutions, is that humanity has become so anthropocentric now that they don't really acknowledge that there are superior spiritual beings that that gods exist on their own terms, that they are not tools for humanity, but actual beings with their own will and their own subjective interpretation of reality, and that they will only cooperate with you based on a relationship, which has to be formed as you would form a relationship with a friend or a lover. It wouldn't be you don't snap your fingers and make people do favors for you. So, but and yet people act as if, you know, Venus or Odin will just because you wear the right heavy metal T-shirt with their image on it will appear to you and grant you boons without ever really understanding that God or forming a relationship with that being. So that's that's one example of something I see largely missing is a a mistrust of what people fear to be religion in quotes and also also a unwillingness to bow down to a superior power to admit that there are beings far more powerful than mortals which if you go to the greek and ancient and roman and babylonian magical world you will see that those civilizations understood that mortality mortal beings were on a lower plane than the gods so I think that's a big problem is anthropocentric egotism, thinking that humanity is at the center of everything 
and not acknowledging the, the and this is this is why theurgy has become much less practiced. I would say, you know, other than the Abrahamic religions, which in their own bizarre, distorted way are practicing a theurgy with with a very corrupt and malignant deity. Um, you know, mo- most dealings with gods is not really theurgy. It's, it's sort of play acting. So I think that's an important part of, of what is missing in the dialogue about magic today. I am very grateful that you said that. I frequently am advancing the same argument um, that the gods are living beings. You could even call them people. They're different kind of people than we are. They're a different kind of species, you could say, of spiritual being than we are. But there is a deep relationship between us and them, and they're not just abstract concepts or personified natural forces. These are actual self-aware, intelligent beings on a higher scale of magnitude, depth, and understanding than we have while we are incarnate. And mm-hmm. Exactly. They're, they're, we should approach them with reverence and gravity because of their profound wisdom and power and, in the 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 flippant the flippant sort of idea that these are just you like electricity you just turn it on and use it is is really born of lack of understanding but i think that that also um is related to the fact that people don't realize that though there is a relationship between the physical senses and the spiritual senses the spiritual senses are almost a different set of senses to interact with a world that is just as real if not more real than the physical world that our bodies reside in well of course it's actually it's much more real because it's eternal the spiritual world is there this temporal material world is already dissolving i mean we right now are already in the process of dying. Once we're started to be born, we're on our way to the process of death. The spiritual world is there permanently. I mean, it too is subject to change, but this temporary dream mirror-like illusion that we're living in that we think is reality is, is just as fleeting as yesterday's dream compared to the profundity and depth and eternal nature of what we can loosely call the spiritual, the metaphysical. So yes, what you're saying is absolutely true. I was just going to say, now, Nicholas, uh, would you be open to going a little bit more deeply into your experience in the Chamber of SETI? Uh, I was very heavily no, sure. impacted by your description of it, and I, I would like very much for our listeners to have some access to your insights from that. Sure. Was there any particular aspect of it that you wanted me to touch on? Because there's several strands to that. Well, we, you know, we love depth on our show. So um, if you would be open to talking about it in the way that your, that your heart tells you. I'm pretty shallow. I'm pretty shallow. Let me see if I can. can (laughs) Um, um, Yeah. Well, the, for for your listeners who may not know what you're referring to, in 1983, I went on a spiritual pilgrimage to Egypt. And to cut a very long story short, at the tomb of Seti I, the pharaoh Seti I, 
which was discovered by an Italian archaeologist in the 1800s and is now, I believe, for many decades has been closed and you cannot even visit it. But luckily, at that time, you were able to go into it. And the tomb of Seti I is very unique in the tombs of the pharaohs in the Valley of the Kings in that when you go down into it, it is designed to be that you are going up, you, you're going down a very narrow flight of stairs, but it's made to look almost like a planetarium. It, it, it's like you're going upwards into outer space and it's black and the, and the stars and constellations, unlike most Egyptian religious art, which is usually very bright and colorful, you, you go into a, incredibly dark chamber deep below the earth but paradoxically it's supposed to be ascending upwards into space which is where the gods were perceived to be and where where the constellations that they formed were, were given particular reference and symbolic significance in the egyptian religion and the practice of theurgy so in this very dramatic tomb i mean it's it's very powerful and I don't attribute any, it's, it's not like there's something special about me that it happened to me. I would think anybody whose spiritual antenna are sensitive and went to this place would feel it. It was, it's, you know, it's indescribable. It's ineffable. There are some things that cannot be described, the power in this place. And I guess it's significant to point out that Seti I, the Pharaoh, was part of the Ramesseed dynasty and Ramesses uh, was a Setian pharaoh and so worship of Set was particularly pronounced during the the rule of this military. They were basically a military family, not an aristocratic family and they they had a coup and so this Setian group of pharaohs, the Ramesses and Seti the first um, were, yeah, in other words, it's very important that they were dedicated to the god Set, which was their particular tribal god as soldiers, because Set was the god of warriors, of merchants, of travelers, of people who cross frontiers and who are fearlessly going beyond the borders of the known world. So I entered into this place, down into the lowest level, and... I won't tell the whole narrative of what happened, but basically I had been looking into set a great deal. I had been living in England at that time and I got caught up with a woman who was involved in the Typhonian OTO. If you know something about that. Yes. Okay. Just, I don't know if your listeners are, are off a with all that, but just so you know, the background, uh, I got involved with this sort of, subgroup of the Typhonian OTO that were practicing sexual magic and based on the on the not even remotely historically valid works of Kenneth Grant, the supposed heir and successor to Aleister Crowley. But they're very interesting books. And when I was young, and I mean, I was very young at that time, and just even though I'd been looking into this for a decade already, I was open-minded and so experimented with the Typhonian magic of Kenneth Grant with this group in England. But I did my own research at the British Museum, which has a huge Egyptological 
section. And it's actually an important lesson is that you should never accept what any magical teacher says on face value. You should absolutely check if it's true. And that goes for me as well. You should never take anybody's word for something because if something is valid, it can be proven to be valid. And I and so I looked into Kenneth Grant's theories about set and the basic misunderstanding he had, which I then accepted, was that set was actually the origin of Satan. I'm sure you're familiar with that theory that he expressed. Yes, very. We know we know a lot about it, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's completely wrong. I have to say that it could not be wrong. It, it is what's called folk etymology. It's just a it's a stupid error based on someone who doesn't know anything about ancient languages saying basically that set sounds like sat in Satan. And of course, they're totally different meanings. There is no connection. I think that's very important to say because so many people to this day, even educated PhDs, believe this nonsense that that Satan is set. Well, in 1983, when I was young and fairly new to the to the actual practice of theurgy, I accepted this idea from Grant. But I looked deeper into it and found it didn't it didn't hold up to to modern archaeological study of Set and what he was. He's definitely his own being, and it has no connection to the Judeo-Christian Satan. And then in my recent updated version of my book, The Satanic Screen, I added a section getting into who and what Satan is in the first place. And even that is not what most Satanists or Christians imagine it to be, but that's probably digressing too much. But that's important to know too. Satan is not what most people think Satan is. So, and Set, the Egyptian god, is certainly not Satan. But at the time, I was confused and sort of trying to figure it out. So I went down into the tomb of Seti I, which was open to the public at that time. And there I subjectively felt that I had a communication from Set at the bottom where where the sarcophagus of Seti I once lay, now has been removed, but still down in the lowest chamber, very resonant with the aura of some alien power is all I can say. It's just so, it's like entering another dimension, or it was at the time for me. And it came to me as a sound And this is why I said earlier that really my whole public career began then, because at that time I had been, if you can imagine how cynical I am now, in 1983, after the Reagan revolution in America and the rise of idiotic American right-wing Christian fundamentalism, I thought America was doomed then. Little did we know how doomed it would be. Um, but already then, I wanted to escape from what I saw as a, a horrible turn that the Reagan era represented as far as, well, anything valuable. Um, so I was planning on actually getting land and retiring to Egypt, even when I was that young, and just studying magic and meditation and mysticism and and I would have done that had it not been for this experience in the tomb of Seti I, where I felt that Set 
communicated to me that it was cowardly to leave the battlefront of America and that in fact, back and to a certain degree, fight the forces of Christian fundamentalism and not just Christian, but in general, the forces of ignorance, let's put it that way, that were rampant at that time and which are rampant again in a new cancerous form today. But, you know, that that was a particularly unique period when the religious fundamentalism was at the forefront. So the message came to me there from Set that it would be cowardly to retreat, but that I should go right back into the enemy, the heart of the enemy and attack. And from that came Radio Werewolf, which although I didn't really announce it, or as I said earlier, when we began the interview, I deliberately didn't explain what I was doing. It was, but that was a nine year ritual from 1984 to 1993 that's still resonant and still echoes to this day. And, um, but it started there in the chamber of Seti the first. And I also have to point out that at that time, I did not fully understand who and what Set was or the significance of it. And I would say that Zena, as the high priestess of Set, um, you know, has elucidated what Set is better than anyone else today. But I do want to make it clear, in 1983, I had a very, uh, much more fragmentary understanding of what Set is. But it was, as far as I'm concerned, a genuine communication from that God and although I had had other experiences, in fact, my first memory was a communication with a deity, which I can describe later because I think that's significant too. It was so overwhelmingly proof that there is a higher intelligence than humanity that is capable, at least for me, that was the turning point for me that absolutely convinced me that the divine realm does communicate to the human realm and that it knows what it's talking about. And so, and that was a turning point. And it's kind of ironic that so many people are familiar with the interview I did with Bob Larson, in which I'm explaining, you know, explaining what the Church of Satan ideology was, explaining what Levian atheistic ideology was. But that was not my belief. That was not what I believed. So a lot of people are surprised when I say that because, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with that interview too. Um, because it's so widely known, people assumed that I went from being an atheist to being a deist or theist, which I did not. I have always been, had absolutely no doubt that the gods exist. So that was significant in absolutely confirming to me that superior divine intelligences can contact humanity and I acted on it and and really the next nine years of my life were determined in many ways by that moment very interesting do you think um, we could focus on how that experience the, the sonic component the sound component of that experience mm -hmm. in the chamber of seti was that a catalyst there for for your ideas yeah on i had magic? i had already i think it's 
I mean, it crystallized something that I already was intellectually thinking. It made it clear on a mystical, transrational level. And I've written about this in the magazine Beatdom, which is a magazine about the beat movement. I wrote an essay about William Burroughs in which I described how in 1975, I came across uh, a pretty much forgotten article that William S. Burroughs wrote for Crawdaddy Magazine, which was a music periodical at the time. And it was about Jimmy Page, of all things, which I should point out, I have never been a great fan of Jimmy Page or or never caught up in the whole pseudo-magical mystique of Led Zeppelin, which for many people, I suppose was their introduction to magic because of his interest in Crowley. But it was Burroughs I was interested in, not Page. Anyway, Burroughs wrote about, interviewed Jimmy Page. And what Burroughs had to say was, he was talking a great deal in this article, which I quote in my own essay about Burroughs and magic, um, is that essentially music and all art is you know is magic that 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 in ancient times music and art were inseparable from magic and that only in in modern times have these two things have become separated and and I should point out that even in the you know early 70s mid 70s that William S Burroughs and Kenneth Anger although I don't, I look back at my appreciation of their work now and I see their flaws and I see that they were not completely sound in what they were saying. Mm -hmm. But at the time, as a teenager, they had a huge influence on because they're the only two people I can think of at that time who deliberately and consciously understood, Burroughs understood that the word was magic and that you can change reality through the word. And that you know, so it's not like I invented this idea. Those two definitely influenced my thinking. The, the films of Kenneth Anger were obviously as crude as they may seem to be now in retrospect. And, and you know, maybe, maybe they were just lucky accidents of an interesting time. They were at least an attempt to realize and manifest this idea that, that film could be a magical ritual and Burroughs that writing is a magical ritual that changes reality. So that influenced me a lot. I can't really think of someone who saw that music was that in that time. But I would say I'm working in that tradition. There's no way to deny that those... So that, yeah, so if anyone wants to look back at that article, it's quite interesting. And that was a turning point in my thinking that I think came to fruition with this experience in Egypt if that answers that. But, uh, but it, it, it is, it is yes, important to understand you. that magic is an art too. It isn't, as you said earlier, people, unfortunately these days, because of the cult of scientism, would like to force uh, magic into a scientific model, which it isn't. It's, it was always called the royal art because it's an art. It's, it's, it's an uncertain art too. Like, like if you decide to make a painting or write mm-hmm. a song, you're not sure you will accomplish what you say you're going to accomplish. You try. So it's an art and, and you have to be a disciplined artist, but it has to be, to be a magician requires a creative mind. You have to think in terms 
of of artistry rather than hard science. And I, and so it goes both ways: music, art, cinema, dance, any number of artistic creative activities are magical expressions that are rooted ultimately in ritual because the first songs were prayers. The first drawings that human made were, were magical talismans to help them with hunting, for instance. The earliest we go back to any cultural activity, it is in fact intended to create a sorcerous transformation of matter. So, you know, it, I think it's important to see it's a two-way street. Magic is an art. And music, art, cinema, dance, poetry, all of the other arts are also magic. I mean, if taking a photograph and making a tape recording, I would say are the most significant magical inventions that ever happened. Most people don't think that way. But the ability to capture sound in a recording and then manipulate it allows us to transform reality, taking the I mean, this gets into the cosmic sound, that when you record any sound, incorporated in it is what in Sanskrit is called nada, the cosmic sound that underlies everything. It's a silent sound that is beyond the sensory field of hearing. So when the tape recorder was invented and we were able to actually capture sound and then work with it, that is a huge advance in magical technology and also taking a photograph to capture an image of somebody or something and to be able to manipulate, change it. Those are far more significant magical tools than, you know, bells and knives and, and the medieval trappings that people are still romantically enchanted with. Um, the, the, actually, a, a, to capture an alternate universe in a photograph and film or in a recording studio, or just making a recording, you are you have the raw material of reality, and then you can transform it. And I think that's a way that maybe even non-musicians and artists or non-artists could understand, but they don't really seem to. It's, it's like you need to have a knack for that to get it. A lot of people don't quite see what I mean by that, but because we're so familiar with the technology of recording, it, it would have been considered some trick of the devil in the Middle Ages. And in fact, the earliest attempts to create photography or sound recording were looked at as frightening and maybe crossing a boundary that humanity shouldn't cross at first. So I think that's important to understand. The, the ability to create an alternate ritual universe, which becomes like a chamber of transformation through, through a recording or a photograph, is probably the most potent magical tool at our disposal very eloquently put thank you very much for that it 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 um i kind of feel as though in egyptian terms when you're setting into motion uh through through uh ritual through the right you're you're reenacting the zeptepi the first day from the from the exactly from the chamber of secrets and um mm -hmm. Uh, a couple of things I wanted to say that your words sparked was that in my experience too, um, contact with the deity changes you and also it has this catalytic effect on your life 
it changes you and also produces changes, but also causes the impetus of the catalyst causes you to produce changes which are in accordance with the deity, but also our ability as magicians to create change originates in our own divine nature, which is sort of a Promethean fire. And mm-hmm. in the same, yes. Yes. in the same sense, um, you know, the arts, magic, like if I'm sitting and making a piece of art, I may have an intention for it, but it might end up going in a completely different direction. It starts to take on a life of its own. And I think magic's like that too, where you may think you're doing this. You may think you even know the reasons you're doing this, but you may, there may be a deeper impulse within you that is beyond your conscious awareness that is motivating you to create these changes and then the magic changes you and you have to have this comfort with this dynamic state of being in my opinion would you agree with that absolutely you i mean there are two important points that in turn what i said sparked that and and what you said sparks these ideas as well is that the problem is that i mean every twilight zone every folk tale is about what happens when you make a wish without deeply looking into the implications. All of these fairy tales and short stories in the pantheon of fantastic literature are always warning people, don't, you know, don't make those three wishes unless you've really clearly thought thought all the consequences through. And that's part of what you're saying. You you can say, I, I don't know, what, what, is, what do you say is the most common thing that people use magic for? Sex, maybe? <laughs> money? Yeah, okay, so yeah, yeah, sex and money, sure. So let's say, or a prostitute, sex and money. Um, <laughs> let, the, let's, okay, sex. So if you called upon Aphrodite to bring you a sexual partner who would be an appropriate deity to ask, um, you, unless you've looked into your own psychology and into the deepest levels of your own mind and looked at your own, what, why, what is your idea of a sexually perfect or attractive um, partner? If you don't understand how much that's tangled up in your own neuroses and ego problems, and that it's not entirely a positive thing, you, in other words, you need to psychoanalyze yourself and look at the deepest subconscious levels of what, what you want before you ask for it, because you could, it's, it's, you know, you could get what you want, but you, if you're not familiar with everything that you actually asked for, because you don't know the deepest subtle nuances of your, of your mind, you're going to get a lot more than you expected. And as you said, it's, uh, for, it could be for better or for worse, but this is why, Self-analysis is the first step to becoming a magician. You, you really, you have to understand the mind, as Buddhist cosmology would understand it. That you know, the mind is much more than the brain. The mind is everything we are experiencing. The entire phenomenal universe that we experience is the mind. If you don't simultaneously try to understand the nature of the mind and also take a deep harsh light into your deepest inner self and look at why do you want the things you want you it will be like you know the in fantasia with mickey mouse and the sorcerer's apprentice 
you will only create a catastrophe for yourself that you won't be able to control. And of course, most early magical experiments lead to that sort of thing. So, so I mean, you know, there was a reason the ancient Greek philosophers put know thyself in the academy. You, that That's rule number one. You, and how many people have the interest, patience, or endurance to really try to understand themselves and not to praise yourself and think how wonderful we are, but to look look at our illusions, look at our stupidities, look at our, well, your, your show is called The Fool and the Magician. Look at what a fool you can be before you conjure these things. So that's, that's a very important point. Is a lot of people want to just look outside of themselves and they never take time to look at their inner world at all. And that, that's a recipe for disaster. Very true. And yeah, the idea of know thyself really could be the only thing that you ever uh, focus on. Really, it s- seems very simple to say know thyself. I think people maybe brush it off like, ah, yeah, I know myself. Mm-hmm. But really, it's a lifelong, I mean, that that's a really hard, <laughs> a hard question, a hard task to, to put in front of yourself is to know thyself. It, it's a lot more difficult and painful perhaps than people it should realize. Be. It should be painful. And this is why yeah. most people give up as soon as the painful part. But when you get to the painful part of self-discovery, then you're actually getting somewhere. That's when you exactly. should keep pursuing it. And now another part of uh, misunderstanding about magic and knowing thyself is karma. And mm. many beginning magicians make the mistake of thinking just because they want, I mean, you name the universal things people usually ask for, sex or money, just because you ask for them doesn't mean you need to know your karmic past as well as your current past. What is, magic is not a universal panacea that you could, it's not just a magic button you can push at like a Coke machine and get what you order. Uh, you can only get what your karma will allow you to get. To, to transform your ability. I mean, so this way it, it becomes a process of initiation rather than just a consumer function of I ask for something and a God gives me something. It's, it is a way to it, ultimately a, a form of initiatory self-understanding. If you realize your karma is not going to allow you at this moment to get object A, B, or C, then you have to change your inner world and you have to purify your negative karma. And actually, I have done that recently, just to make it clear it's not theoretical. I won't go into all the details, but there was a long period of a few years where I had a major obstacle. It was like I was coming against a wall in every attempt at a certain goal reaching. And it changed just within recent months after doing a particular ritual in which I focused not so much on the outer or exterior changes that I wanted in the material universe, but I focused instead on purifying my karma that obviously had reached a dead end that was not able to attain what I thought I needed. And when I looked into my inner life and saw that there's no outer obstacle preventing me. It's actually within me that there's a blockade and that needs to be corrected. 
Now I did exterior ritual. I, you know, I, I, and I used art and music to make this transformation. But just to give people the idea, I'm not just talking theoretically. I have had my own obstacles and I superseded this one by changing direction, not concentrating so much on how do I change the matter outside of me, but how do I change my own inner obstacle, which has to be negative karma that prevents you from that, if, if that makes sense to you, if that's not too abstract. No, it totally makes sense. And for people who are maybe afraid of Buddhism or aren't interested in Buddhism, you can find similar ideas uh, specifically in the writings of Iamblichus. Um, I've noticed yeah, that recently. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Well, the ancient magical writers, I would recommend, and much of what they're saying is just connected to universal truth. You know, it doesn't, mm -hmm. truth is truth. Uh, Buddhism is just a word that Westerners invented for, for something that in Sanskrit that means awakening to the way things are, which you could say is what the Greek word philosophy, love of wisdom. So Iambilicus right. and many of the, and Empodocles and many of the earlier pre-Socratic um, Greek philosophers, a lot of what they're saying is totally consonant with what we understand as the Buddhist teaching. Absolutely. And and since we're st specifically talking about Buddhism now, um, I'd like to maybe talk about your, uh, how, how did you come into Buddhism and how pivotal has that been uh, since you've walked down that path of, mm -hmm. I, I believe it's Tibetan Tantra? Yeah, Tibetan Tantra Buddhism or Vajrayana. Um, mm -hmm. The interesting thing is, as we, we were discussing a little bit before the show, um, people have the impression that this is a recent change and that it's a drastic, dramatic change. Like one day I was a devil worshiper and then the next day I was a Buddhist. And <laughs> because, you know, it's my, I, I don't have much of a private life since I began my public career, but my spiritual life is largely private. I don't, I don't want to make a show of it and go out. I, I'm happy to teach people who are sincerely interested what will help them for their own spiritual development. But that's not, it doesn't really have a lot to do with me. It's not like I, I never sought out to, when I was a devil worshiper, I didn't give a damn if other people became one. I've never tried to convert people. And in fact, I only talked about that publicly because of the literal witch hunt, a word that has been misused lately in American politics. But when there was a literal witch hunt, I felt I had to, and of course, Zena, even more, had to go out there and explain to the, the torch-bearing mob, you know, what we were doing. But we wouldn't have had there not been the social pressure to do so. Uh, same with Buddhism, I, and same with the Setian religion. I should point out that I really, there's... As I mentioned before, the secret protects itself. If you talk about these things to people who are not sincerely interested, you are, you, you mentioned something about approaching the gods with reverence. And if you bring the sacred into the profane, you are tainting it. So it's a very fine line between explaining what magic and mysticism is, and even religion, and 
dumbing it down to the point where you are desecrating it. And I tried to be very careful about that. So I, it is a fine line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so that it's, it's difficult and maybe impossible to determine, but as far as Buddhism, what I was saying is people have this idea of a sudden transformation because that makes a better story. Or also, I'm also presented by my detractors as a look how flighty and, and uncertain he is. One day he was this and then he's that. And then, but it, it wasn't like that. Um, from my earliest childhood, from literally about 1966 is when I first became attracted to the figure of the devil as I understood it. And I've explained that actually in a, in a pretty good interview that David Flint of the reprobate magazine did with me last year, which I would recommend if people want to get into my devil worship period, that probably explains it the most lucidly. Um, so that's how long during, during the whole occult renaissance of the 1960s, I became deeply involved in devil worship. And as I've said before, I make a distinction, devil worship rather than Satanism, which implies an atheistic, uh, social ideology these days. And what I was referring to is literally the devil was my religion, you know, as, as a literal being that I worked with and communicated with, not, not a symbol. And in the, already in the nineties, in the early nineties, as radio werewolf was transforming, we went through a period that I would say was more deeply connected to Nordic paganism and Greek myth. And these are things that Zina and I had always been deeply caught up since our childhood as well. It's, It's not, we were, uh, promiscuous in our spiritual beliefs as we were in our personal life. So there, it was much more complex than just Satanism. And then when Radio Werewolf Ritual came to an end, Xena first and then I after began exploring, going back to things that we had explored in our youth, actually. But she went in that direction first of looking of rejecting occultism, basically, to put it in simple terms, of rejecting the whole do-it-yourself religion, 19th century tendency of the Blavatskys and the Crowleys and the Gurdjieffs and, you know, all of them, the self-invented traditions. And and we felt it was necessary to return to what is the truth? What What is an actual tradition with a real lineage that can be counted on. And we explored many for, for, and for instance, for a very long period, if anyone has read our book, Demons of the Flesh, which came out in 2002, at that time we were deeply caught up in the Vama Marga, the, the Vedic Indian left-hand path. Tantra of, of, you could, it would be wrong, but maybe the best way to understand it, the Hindu left-hand path, even though it's actually opposed to Hinduism. I think you know what I mean. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So so for a very long time, and, and in that book, we elucidated it, that the, the Indian form of Tantra was what we practiced. And we both had different experiences, but I had a particular experience in the early 21st century, shortly after moving from America to Berlin, 
1983, when I lived in London, I had was initiated into a cult of Kali from a small Indian group in London. And it was based, you know, a left-hand path, Lama Marga group that was devotional uh, bhakti to the goddess Kali. And I meditated on Kali, and I continued to do that for many years. And in, in that kind of meditation, you are trying to become one with the goddess. So ironically, I was one day doing a Vedic tantric meditation to connect to the goddess Kali, and I had a spontaneous realization that that was not enough, that the god realm was not the end, and that there are is a realm higher, and that in fact Buddhism was correct, that union with a god alone is not the way to liberation. And for people who don't know the difference in the Shakti, Shaktiite practice of goddess worship that I was practicing in the Hindu Tantra, the idea is union with the God will be will give you moksha or liberation. I'm sure you're familiar with that basic concept. Yes. Yeah. So so what I saw was that there are higher realms than that, and it was just like a revelation through a Kali meditation that Buddhism actually was correct, that that there's a higher level than just theurgy and connecting to the divine realm, as important as that is. And then I had a actual vision uh, in our apartment in Berlin of the goddess Kali appearing to me as an ordinary Indian woman, just like anybody off the street in Calcutta, let's say. And a very motherly, not not a glamorous femme fatale like you'd imagine Kali incarnate would be, just a, a kind of maternal Indian woman, came to me and said that if I become a Buddhist, it will repair what is wrong with a particular chakra. And it made sense to me. And it, 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 that, so it's ironic, Kali, a goddess outside the Buddhist tradition, although she's also revered in Tibetan Buddhism in another form, is what made me convert to Buddhism. And I, I mean, some people may think, you know, I have an interest in Buddhism, but I formally converted to it, to the Karmakaju school of Tantric Buddhism. And so that was, that was the transformation. The goddess Kali spoke to me, and I took it seriously because she was my principal uh, devotional goddess. And interestingly, when I first became a Buddhist, it was through a Hinayana monk who I took the first um, oath to to formally become a Buddhist. And I asked him about this curious experience. And he was from Sri Lanka, where there are Hindus and Buddhists. And he, he kind of laughed and said, actually, I mean, this is such a different approach than Western people that Kali has, as far as Buddhists in Sri Lanka understood, has become liberated and has become a Buddhist. So he thought that story made sense. That's fascinating. I've actually, I have heard that. I've, I was getting deja vu while you were telling that story because I've, I've heard someone else say something very similar, um, moving from uh, working with Kali to Buddhism. Which so that's super interesting. 
Mm -hmm. And of course, the left-hand path in tantric Buddhism also reveres the feminine force. And that has been, I mean, the Avega Weiblichkeit, as Goethe said, has been the driving force of my existence and in my music and in my art, really everything. So nothing has changed, just the forms. But so that's how long I have been a tantric Buddhist and actually longer then I was a devil worshiper, but first impressions are what counts. And I, and nor do I regret any of the wrong or, or not even wrong, any of the paths that I took to get to where I am, because they were all necessary. And I also think I have a deeper understanding of what the darker side of the human experience is so that I can combat it, and because I know what it is, because I've seen it. I don't have any illusions that I have that in me. So a lot of spiritual teachers, you know, pretend to be all good and lightness and white shining radiance, but I know there's darkness within me. So I know how hard it is to combat. So I think that actually gives me an advantage. That leads right into um, a question or two. I wanted to ask you as a matter of fact, um, the in popular culture, especially in the West, not so much in the East where you do see a little bit more of this, but in the West, the concept of an enlightened person or an enlightened being is this very much tied to this new age perception of, oh, this is somebody who's always happy and peaceful and essentially almost spiritually um, castrated in a way. And yeah, absolutely. It doesn't really take into account um, the almost Jung's idea of like this wholeness, which includes the darkness. And it, it brings to mind for me, um, and I think that where you're coming from is, is an authentic example of somebody who is uh, work, developing illumination. And in the, I mean, in, in the Ishraqi uh, um, uh, Sufi school, the, you know, the highest form of spiritual light is the black light. Is is the dazzling right. darkness? Absolutely. And so, well, and and then I mean, the the, the Sufi way influenced me a lot as well. There is also the path of Malamat, the path of blame. Uh, and actually, this you know, it's funny. This is something that I was thinking of writing an essay about. So I'm glad you brought it up. I always encounter people who don't know much about Buddhism who think. But how can you be a Buddhist? You said this sarcastic thing, or you know your your sense of humor is very harsh, or you you know they they assume, like you said, castrated. They assume that to be a Buddhist is to be a smiling ninny, like someone with a lobotomy. <laughs> and they, you know, on in fact, Buddhism is looking at reality much from a much harsher perspective and judging humanity's flaws in a much deeper way than than you know a lot of people think buddhism is the easygoing new age uh make it up as you go along hobby but it's actually a very harsh examination of the flaws of human nature so if you don't understand the darkness the maras the demonic energies that oppose you if you are on the spiritual path in the same way that when jesus realized who he was in the desert that is when the satan 
appeared to him as an initiatory challenge, by the way, not because the devil opposes Jesus, but because he's testing him, because he's, he's a, a emissary of the God coming to test Jesus to see if he's worthy of his role. And in the same way, in the story of Buddha's enlightenment, at the moment the Buddha is about to become enlightened, Mara, the god of death, appears, who is very similar to some understandings of the Christian devil. Mara appears and tempts him in the same way. He offers everything the sensory world can offer in the way of pleasure, knowledge, and ego appeal, and Jesus and Buddha rejected this offer. And that, that's an important part of everyone's initiation. And anyone who thinks that you can be on the spiritual path and it's all going to be bright light, rainbows, and lollipops, it's not. They don't know. The spiritual world is as filled with darkness as light, as is all aspects of existence. So you better understand them. So the fact that I have known mass murderers well, that I've known criminals, that you know, that I am myself was not immune from those from from criminal impulses when I was young, actually have helped me to understand all that and, and to understand what needs to be transcended. I mean, for instance, my past life memories, which I have a very distinct one of my last past life, I know I was not a good person. So I know that it is possible to transform. And that, that's what initiation is about. It's, it's transform. You don't, you don't enter a path of initiation because you're perfect. You enter it because you see your flaws. And it's, it's a process of transformation for the better. It isn't patting yourself on the back of, of how wonderful you are. And if that's what people think it is, they will be sorely disappointed. Totally agree. And I, I love how you put that. Um, recently, I've been, I've been kind of working through that myself. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Buddhist sutra, uh, the Vamalakarti sutra. Um, there's so many of them out there. But um, this particular sutra speaks to this uh, specifically. And what I'm learning is, and what it says as well, is that uh, practice in a vacuum is is really pointless. So you've you've kind of alluded to this. You can't, you know, doing doing practice in a temple, doing practice in a church, and if that's all you're doing, um, if you're not looking at your demons, if you're not uh, confronting reality head on, if you're not in the trenches then your practice, mm -hmm. your practice is only going to go so far and it's going to be extremely limited. Um, well, there, 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 this is, to a certain extent, the difference in the true sense of the word, not the occultist misinterpretation that, that um, Blavatsky, Crowley, LeVay, and Aquino have perpetuated, the right-hand path and left-hand path. That's what the real tradition is, the right-hand path in Eastern mysticism is saying retreat from the sensory world and all of its temptations, meditate in a temple as much as possible, um, resi resist temptation, resist the darker impulses of the human nature. But, and that is a path that is, that is necessary for the karma of certain people that cannot control themselves. If you understand what I mean, it's 
you have to become a monk if you cannot create the inner state of renunciation. If you are so tempted by the world that you're drawn to it to that degree, then that is a legitimate path, mm. the path of renouncing the world. Not It's not for everybody to, to go on the tantric path, which is the left-hand path. Again, in the true sense of the word, what that means. It means to, as you said, to go down in the trenches, to be with it, test you, you know, it's easy to meditate at a, at a beautiful retreat center in, you know, some resort somewhere where people, where wealthy spiritual tourists go as a kind of vacation. Right. But just as the Indians sitting in a charnel ground with the smell of cremating corpses, the way to real, to transformation and liberation in this lifetime on the tantric path if you're made of the stuff that can deal with it, is to live in this wor- in this world, but not of it, and that that is the key. But not it's not for everybody. There there are, according to Buddhism, eighty five thousand different teachings and methods of liberation, and eighty five thousand you could sort of think like keys or or locks which a key needs to go into. So for some people, it is necessary to to resist temptation, to remove themselves from the challenges of the real world. And that is their spiritual path. As you said, it is much slower. It's much less intense. It would take, actually the tradition is that that would take almost seven lifetimes to attain liberation. The point of the tantric practice is to attain liberation quickly. But why? Not for yourself, but so that you can free others quickly. Mm-hmm. Because at the heart of the tantric understanding is samsara, that this, the first teaching of the Buddha, that all is suffering. So we are inspired in our initiation by the desire to free ourselves so that we can free others, and we should do that as quickly as possible. So that's why we go down into the trenches and deal with the nitty gritty of reality rather than close ourselves off from the world. But that is necessary for some people. But the but the idea of Buddhism or spiritual practice just being all like forced benevolence and and uh, artificial happiness and cheerfulness at all times, that's what that's what people want. You know, that's what the marketing of it tries to sell. <laughs> but real the real thing, there is no way that a Buddhist acts because Buddhism is a universal wisdom. So a lot of people get self-righteous about, well, that that's not Buddhist to say that, to do this, but they don't have a very clear or sophisticated understanding of how all-encompassing Buddhism is. I think that sort of describes it. Very well said. Thank you for the clarification. Mm-hmm. You touched on it here a moment ago, and I would love to go deeper into this subject, the topic of compassion and the importance of compassion and why it's so important. Mm -hmm. Compassion, too, is very misunderstood in the Western world because mostly the Western world has been exposed to Christian ideas of compassion, which is a little bit more like pity Mm. than what we're talking about in Tantric Buddhism. Essentially, you have to begin with the fundamental core 
the problem of all problems for the human mind in samsara is our false belief in an independently existing self, an I, a, a permanent being that is me, that is an unchanging center of our universe. This focus on a self that we believe to be me, I, is the cause of all of our suffering. And, beca- and, and anyone who's honest can look at their, their emotions and their thoughts and their feelings and see that the way the untrained, unenlightened human mind approaches the sensory field of reality that we interpret is what's in it for me. We look at everything in terms of what, okay, is that good for me? Is that bad? I don't like that. I reject that. I don't care about that, which is the three poisons uh, enumerated in Buddhism, which is ignorance, aversion, and attachment. So because we have this illusion of being a truly existent, independent self, what, what Western terminology would call the ego, but Buddhism tends to look more as self, we then think, what does the self need? And then of course, what the self needs, we push everything else out of the way. We push other people out of the way, animals out of the way, all all beings that are in the way of us getting what we think we need. So this desire, which is called tana in Sanskrit, like thirst, the ego, because it is dualist, because it sees subject and object, me and that, because we don't see that everything is one, like a baby grasping for a toy or a child for a sweet, we, we keep grasping and grabbing at the outer sensory world under the illusion that if we get something we want or if we get rid of something we don't want or if we ignore something we don't care about, that that will appease this ego, this self that it will give a feeling of satisfaction and happiness. But that is that is the ultimate illusion. So to understand compassion, first you have to understand why if we look at the world today and see an incredible lack of compassion, a lot of cruelty, a lot of harshness, a lot of divisiveness, which we see everywhere in the world today, the hysterical political climate, is based completely on, and I don't care if it's right or left, I'm not judging which ideology is correct, but we need to look at the real world, you look at the headlines, and you see that egotism is running rampant as never before, unchecked by any kind of ethical concern for others. So the root cause of that is our self-absorption and our focus on me and what I want and what I need. And, and of course, you know, consumer capitalist society pushes that on us all the time. Compassion doesn't mean looking down on other people and thinking, oh, poor, poor them. You know, they're so, so much in a lesser position than I am. It's not, it's not pity. Compassion is a natural aspect of mind when mind is freed from the ego illusion all that is there and this is true for everyone for you everyone that has a mind everyone that has the mind 
wisdom and compassion are the two qualities of mind. And the the traditional Buddhist way of interpreting it is of compassion in the Buddhist sense is not pity. It's not like it's not like seeing a bum on the street and saying, "Oh, here, here's a dollar." You know, that is a temporary little bit of compassion, not a bad thing, but not the ultimate compassion, which is compared in Buddhism to the sun shining. The way that the sun shines on everything without even thinking twice. Obviously, the sun doesn't say, I'm only going to send a ray of sunshine to this particular person who needs it. It shines universally. If you were freed of your ego illusion, of your selfishness, of your self-absorption, it would automatically, you would realize all other beings are you. You are all other beings. So it would be as crazy not to be compassionate as it would be to cut off your own finger because you would understand we are sharing one experience. The all that's happening from a non-dual perspective is one experience. So it isn't being a nice person or being a good person per se, according to socially conventional standards. It's understanding that even your enemy is you and Embracing that on a on a spontaneous, deep level, not not because it would be a nice idea to do so, but because you truly come to understand through the practice of meditation that there's only one mind, and therefore, if I harm you, I am harming myself. And this gets into karma too. If you understand karma as an actual fact, not a theory that you can reject or accept. According to Wim, if you understand it's the it's the law of the universe that it is it is irrevocable. That is another way to remind yourself that compassion can. If you don't have compassion, you are absolutely creating negative karma for yourself. Every time you are unkind to someone, every time you deliberately go out of your way to be cruel or unfeeling to any being. I don't care if it's a bug or a dinosaur or a human being or an alien or a demon or a god. And all of these things are are potentially Buddha. Therefore, universal compassion, which doesn't mean stupid, what Chagyam Trungpa called idiot compassion. It doesn't mean that you don't see the flaws and the problems of other people. Or that if your enemy is coming to kill you, you don't defend yourself. But can you have compassion for your enemy for being so fucked up in their minds that they are filled with hatred and cruelty? And understand that they are creating negative karma for themselves and you can feel sorry for them watching them do this. So that maybe that would give people a little clearer understanding of what compassion in the Buddhist sense is. But it's, it's absolutely essential. And a lot of people see it as weakness these days. I notice that very often. They think if you were too compassionate, you would be taken advantage of or that it, you would be too vulnerable. But in fact, it's it takes a lot more strength to be compassionate to everybody and everything you encounter than to constantly be judging who is on your side, who is your friend, who is your enemy.
I think it's interesting that we live in a world where that's the case, where it's easier to do the wrong thing. Yeah. Well, like, what did you mean exactly? In which way? Well, most people do have that um, natural inclination to judge others, to condemn others, to act out of anger or spite or um, self-serving interests. Um, And compassion is, it does take more effort. It does take more courage. It does take more work. But well, I should, I should, I want, I want to, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say in proportion to the investment you put into right action, right thought and right word, the, the recompense is, is priceless. You, You get so much back from that. Well, the Dalai Lama has pointed out that because we are selfish and egotistical, one way of learning why we should practice compassion is that it is in our own best interest. As you said, the by being compassionate, our karma will improve, therefore our life will improve. So there's every reason and motivation to, to cultivate compassion. Even it's from even if you use a selfish reason to do it, understanding that your karma and your everyday life would be improved, that that's the essential thing. I think if you understand karma is real. You will understand every malicious word that you say, every malicious thought that you think, and every malicious action that you make against another person, no matter how justified you may think it is, is only harming you. It may harm them temporarily, and your ego may be pleased to see that you've harmed them, but you are ultimately digging your own grave with each malicious action. But it also doesn't mean blind acceptance of everything everyone does. You see, you discriminate. Discrimination is also a part of the enlightened mind, being able to judge what is correct and what is not correct. But you can have compassion for the terrible mistakes that people make and even for the harm they may cause you. You can feel sorry for them knowing that when they deliberately harmed you, they are harming themselves. That Now, that's very hard for most people to do, especially inflamed by the kind of divisiveness that modern society cultivates. I think that that's very true. And um, on that note, um, kind of circling, circling around a little bit, I did, uh, mm-hmm. especially since this is going to be our Halloween episode, I did want to ask you, I have two kind of questions along that theme. First of all... Um, mm-hmm. I think it's remarkable the kind of uh, what you the kind of experiences you had growing up, even as a kid. I mean, you met horror icons at an early age, and you grew up in an era where you know, in this sort of combination of there was this occult revival, there was this psychedelic culture, and then there was this horror culture. And I was under wondering, you know, when you looked back. When you look back as a magician, as the artist, and you look at that, um, would you say that these influences sort of uh, had a role in the formation of your magical self? Oh, yeah, that, that's an understatement. I mean, I make no bones about it. I am completely a creation of those three things that, you know, when I came into being, into this world, in this incarnation, the magical revival was going full blast and I was exposed to it in very direct ways. Uh, the uh, 
I was another thing is that the the monster mania and horror revival on one level the hammer films were new and so every weekend american international and hammer you had traditional supernatural horror everywhere and then you know and many other lesser known films of that type and the revival of the universal films on television and then add to that the incredibly bizarre and unimaginable to someone that didn't experience it what it was like when the Western world was suddenly exposed to instant mysticism because of the prevalence of LSD and the very brief but potent psychedelic revolution. You mix those three things together and also look at my work. I mean, really, those are the themes I have dealt with again and again and probably will continue to. And part of it is because it was such a strange period. If you weren't there to witness it, it's very hard to you can see, you can look at the cultural uh, artifacts that it produced, and they still are very powerful. But the mood and the feeling of it is impossible to describe. The, there was a sense that some door to another world opened for a few years, and I definitely noticed it closed again sometime in the seventies. It was some it may have been terrible it may have been wonderful it's very hard to judge what it was but something changed for a very brief time and i i compare it it's like if you grow up in a war it's so extreme you can never really adjust to civilian life again you know and and so what one imagined the world would be like with that confluence the psychedelic the supernatural and the macabre everywhere and the diabolical and the occult, all of that coming to the forefront in such a powerful, all-consuming way. And also I became obsessed with it and focused on it, but it was everywhere anyway. You know, you could hardly get away from it. Um, of course, that totally transformed me and, and shaped the nature of my work to this day. It was truly a remarkable time, and I I, th I think um, when I look at an artist such of yourself such as yourself, and I see those influences and what you've done with it and how you've developed it, it really does sort of indicate that there was some kind of tremendous spiritual impulse that was occurring there, and that's kind of where I, when I was contemplating this and contemplating uh, this point, uh, that's kind of where I came up with this uh, sort of contemplation or this question about. Um, do you think that the horrific character of uh, monsters in popular culture, especially in that era, uh, could be compared to the wrathful forms of wisdom deities in the collective psyche? That that these that these horrific sort of monsters are actually reflections of enlightened states of awareness. Absolutely, I, I agree with that, and I have thought that in those specific words. The the classic supernatural pantheon of monsters are i mean they they were all born out of the gothic revival of the 19th century for the most part that was a if you look at it in historical context the gothic horror and macabre the classic novels and short stories from which that pantheon comes were a rejection of the industrial revolution of secular humanism of the world embracing so-called age of enlightenment, rationality, science. And 
the the icons of the horror literature that then became horror film were basically a romantic they, they were a manifestation of romanticism rejecting the secular and the rational and getting back to the mystical supernatural so i believe yeah they have the potency they they are like secular gods dracula frankenstein the mummy and particularly like when this i've mentioned before this uh process of initiation that i went through as a very young child i had this babysitter who considered herself to be a witch and she would very seriously we'd watch the classic universal horror films which would come on very late on tv in those days the only way you could see them would be like at midnight and um she would let me stay up to watch them and she would use it like a course teaching me about egyptian mythology from the mummy or what the legends of lycanthropy are from the wolfman or the werewolf of london and even my interest in the devil comes particularly from a statement that renfield makes describing dracula saying you know if you will bow down to me all these things i will give you and this witch mentor of mine explained that that was from the bible and that was what the devil said to jesus so yeah there there is a spiritual power and you and you could say that those are the wrathful deities transformed into a form that secular modern rational human beings can deal with but i think this even even things like the creature of the black lagoon or other dr jekyll and mr hyde the phantom of the opera they are archetypes of of the spiritual the, the wrathful side of spiritual experience which western culture tends not to embrace and when you but when it, you think of in all these i'm sorry go ahead i was going to say but it takes you outside of yourself and it shocks you out of the ordinary reality into non-ordinary reality and makes you face things that are hidden in the shadows absolutely and i i think a message that i got because no, you see nobody when i was raised in the counterculture environment of the 60s nobody was there to tell me oh these are bad figures that the, to me they were my heroes to me the bad figures were the ignorant rabble the mob going to the castle with the torches to stop any human any progress or any any of going into the unknown so to me the the mob trying to prevent the monster was the villain and the monster was the hero and it took a long time before i understood that's not the way the rest of society saw it so you know they they are they are transgressive figures they they are essentially promethean figures and in and it's like morality plays they have to be destroyed by the conventional forces of matrimony and order they can be looked at on a on a jungian archetypal level and they are figures of liberation of of i mean all, most of the and i i'm not interested in slasher films and all of that and i sort of lost interest in the genre after that period after the period of classic horror sort of fizzled out in like the mid 70s i was only interested in the supernatural aspect of it not not just you know gore and physical violence for its own sake that was never of any particular interest to me
Well, it's remarkable because as as a as a somebody who was raised by you know a mother who was obsessed with horror and you know seeing these movies constantly around growing up and I mean one of my earliest memories is coloring a Universal Monsters coloring book you know and it's, it, the joy I felt in in doing that and I had right. the same relationship with these figures I saw them as iconic and heroic and beautiful not scary or ugly but beautiful and inspiring. And, right, right. Um, I, I I agree. And you know, it's funny. It it it's still uh, we're working through Dark Shadows right now because all of the seasons are available now online, and um, it's amazing mm -hmm. to me that on daytime TV in that era, you could watch the like a person coming back from the dead. You could watch a witch casting a spell that is actually a, a legitimate spell that could work if it were used in day-to-day -day life oh i i i'm i again i i you know happily would admit i'm i was one of the kids that dark shadows came on uh immediately after the time american schools would end so if you were going to catch it you'd have to rush home to see it and it was like a cult to me and many other weird outsider kids and that's how you knew that you know they, they were part of your tribe is dark shadows was like an elementary school for magic constantly conjuring spells alchemy it's unbelievable i mean basically it was out of uh, they were just running out of ideas and they obviously scoured the contemporary occult books of the time and just threw everything in there but it did have a very potent effect on me and many others I mean, the, the treating it in a matter-of-fact way that magical rituals work. And and the whole culture was like that. On a more trivial level, you change the channel, there's I Dream of Genie, and you have a djinn, and Bewitched. You know, it, it, this, I too think, was a side effect of how many people were using psychedelics. I think that it opened doors to spiritual realms that came into even the most trivial and frivolous pop culture. And even the Adams family, to a degree, were subversive and almost beatnik-like figures, transgressive figures that sort of were a turning point, even leading to the counterculture. Well, it's funny you mentioned the beat, the beat aspect too, because um, when I was listening to your new album, which I enjoyed a great deal, I could hear um, I could hear the beat influence on your work, and I could hear. I could hear the influence of beat culture. I could hear the influence of expressionist, German expressionist movies. I could hear film noir and I could hear magic. Oh, I, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the, those four things are, are without a doubt the pillar of my influences. So yeah, I'm glad I wear them on my sleeve proudly. So I'm glad you could identify them, but yeah, for for in my heart, probably, I am some kind of beatnik still. That's probably the counterculture that appealed to me the most because it had a darker edge and a more cynical edge than the more utopian hippie. And it's, didn't, isn't it true? I mean, didn't you meet, like you met Vincent Price, you worked with Christopher Lee on a yeah. musical album? I mean, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, not, not only that, I, I knew Myla Nurmi, Vampira very well. Wow. And, uh, 
Yeah, actually, actually, she she was like a mentor to me in many ways for the time that I knew her, and I still, you know, listen to her advice on what not to do as a performer because she made you know many mistakes, but she actually gave me very sound advice of of what to do. And actually, actually, when I was younger, before I met her, there was this. Uh, this gay puppeteer in Hollywood who was a fence for, you know, the underworld actually. And, um, he was like an, he was like an old Hollywood character, like just doesn't exist anymore. And, uh, he was this big obese guy who would sit in his world full of puppets that he made. And the first time he met me, just to show you how much Myla Nurmi influenced me, he was on the phone with someone and he said, oh, Vampira with a dick just walked in. <laughs> that that was his nickname for me thereafter. But then, yeah, I got to meet her. I got to meet her twice. Actually, the first time I met her, she wouldn't admit who she was. Um, but then I met her maybe about 10 years later and got to know her very well. And I actually did a pretty good interview with her that I just found the ancient audio cassette of. And I'm going to. I'm going to play that on the radio pretty soon. Well, that's very exciting. But I also knew uh, that I knew Milo Nermi. Uh, I also knew Robert Quarry, the actor who played Count Yorga, and he was in the Dr. Fibes films, who was being groomed to be the, the next horror star before the whole gothic cycle ended. I, I knew William Marshall, who played Blackula, Barbara Steele, so, yeah, many, many figures from that genre. And in a way, I mean, again, in the, going back to this sort of um, Buddhist sense, this is very much a part of your karma. This, is, this was during, you know, your formative period in your life that you made contact with these figures who embodied that sort of spirit. And, and so it's really interesting oh. to see... Yeah, well, it's 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 neither it, it's neither a good nor I mean I definitely I I have no doubt in my mind that and I knew this immediately that when I came back into this world that I was taking up where I left off and that that was definitely some kind of to use the generic phrase some sort of black magician and I even know vaguely who it was and where it was not a name but a place and and a basic physical idea and i've looked into that more so but there's that's not entirely a positive thing too i mean it's uh it's it, it is the karma that i've had to work with we all have our own karma what draws us to things i was going to say it's also the classic shamanic motif though uh you know a, a true a, a classically a shaman or magician like orpheus for instance um, that you have, they have to travel to the underworld as well as the upper world. You have to have knowledge of, of, of the, of the underworld as well. Absolutely. Well, that's what we were talking about before. If you don't understand the darkness, you cannot recognize the light. And, and not only in, um, in Orpheus and, and of course, every shamanic tradition, the shaman has to go through an ordeal, um, one of the goddesses that's most important to me is Astarte, or Star, who goes down into the underworld and is completely stripped naked, and her encounter with a Rishi Kagal, 
that that too is an initiatory ordeal of going down into the darkness. And even Jesus, it's forgotten, the harrowing of hell, that Jesus goes down into hell and returns. So, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's a necessary part of initiation. Now, I would say I overdid it. You don't need to stay <laughs> in the darkness as long <laughs> as I did. Once, yeah. once you become friends with, once you become friends with Richard Ramirez, you know you overstayed your welcome <laughs> in the darkness. <laughs> wow, um, you know I, I didn't actually know about your interest in Astarte, um, or but your devotion to Astarte. Uh, would you be open to uh, talking about that a, a touch before we start to wrap things up here? Well, again, the. The first memory I have, actually, I mean, to, to make it clear, this, this you know, isn't a side issue of my life. It is my life. Uh, the first memory I have was my parents had a statue of the Venus de Milo that they bought at the Louvre, I believe, on their honeymoon in Paris, but sometime around then. And it was sitting on a lower shelf. And as a a little bit older than infant, I was fascinated with the statue of the Venus de Milo and felt, in retrospect, can only say a karmic connection. I didn't know what it was. I had no concept of what a goddess is. And because Venus is the Greek uh, version of Astarte, of Ishtar, going going back, I mean, even Aphrodite has been found to be etymologically connected, the Greek word to the older words for Astarte. So along with Kali, Astarte, or as she had, of course, in the Bible, is the scarlet woman or the the whore, the great whore of revelations in a negative sense. uh, That has been a dominant, you know, deity in my whole life. Um, and it's very misunderstood. I mean, and uh, we've written about this in Demons of the Flesh, is that unfortunately most people in the magical world are only familiar with this goddess through Crowley's misinterpretation of Babylon. Crowley absolutely butchered everything he touched, and he was a hack and a fool and an imbecile in my opinion. He did more I'm, I'm glad you said that. Yeah, we're we're not fans yeah. of him. Yeah. No, that's I'm but but particularly the misogyny that he brought to his misunderstanding of what a you know the scarlet woman were basically women that he abused and and abandoned. Um he didn't love them, he didn't revere them as goddesses. So he's created a lot of damage that that his particular misogynistic uh, psychologically fucked up relationship to the female, but yeah, Astarte Ishtar, by whatever name, is a very important goddess to me. Also, you know, not to get too uh, obscurely esoteric, but I, I later discovered that in a certain period of Egyptian religion, according to the mythology of one gnome in Egypt, that the that Set had two brides, and one of his brides was Astarte. So that she even connects to the Setian religion because she was a foreign goddess. And it, yeah, Astarte or um, 
Kadesh or Kadesh. Mm-hmm. Well, there, yeah, there are there, and then Neptis. He also had. Well, that gets into how Set's life illustrates the spirit of initiation. He, he is married by the gods to Neptis, who is a monogamous housewife, basically the lady of the house is what her name means. But he is in love passionately with Astarte, who is the goddess of eroticism and sexual love and a war goddess. So that alone tells you something about the constellation of what set signifies on an initiatory level. That's fascinating. And, and it, you know, I always saw an echo of Istar's descent in the, the, the story of Sophia's fall. Absolutely. So, well, I would say Sophia is definitely a form of that goddess. Absolutely. And in the so-called libertine Gnosticism, the worship of Sophia is exactly like the ancient worship or reverence for Ishtar or Aphrodite or Venus. And I tend to see um, Gnosticism almost as the tantric Christianity in the same way that tantric Buddhism is to, you know, more orthodox forms of Buddhism. Well, in, yeah, in, in Demons of the Flesh, Dina and I did make that comparison that, that people, that there is a left-hand path to Christianity and so-called Gnosticism, which is really a misnomer because it's, it's a phrase the Christians invented to defame other approaches to Christianity than the Catholic Church that ultimately became the, the brand, um, the true Christianity, which as far as I'm concerned is Gnosticism, is essentially a revering of the feminine powers as a way to free ourselves from samsara. In other, wor- in other words, it, it has many parallels to Tantric Buddhism. I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, I feel very strongly that that's the case. So I feel like I could talk to you for hours, Nicholas. I, I, it was such a sublime and delightful discussion but um i do i think we should probably uh wrap soon but before we do that i'd like you to talk a little bit about what you're working on right now about your new album and about where people could find you okay yeah well you can find me on all the i i have reluctantly been dragged in to the digital world after ignoring it for many many years with my detriment but uh, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook and even Twitter, though I use that much less because what I have to say can't fit into so few words. But um, you can find me there at Nicholas Shrek Official on Instagram, Facebook. And my YouTube channel, the Nicholas Shrek channel, has many recent interviews and most of my recent music. Um, the... The long-awaited final edition of the Manson file, Myth and Reality of an Outlaw Shaman, is being laid out at this very moment and will be published shortly. In August, in Los Angeles, there was a record release after a screening of my film, Charles Manson Superstar, for my new album, The Illusionist, and that is available now from records ad nauseum which you can find online and that was just released the the album that you were referring to before and that that's that's what will happen this year and and next year there are 
other plans that will be announced when they manifest. Well, we will, we will most certainly be glad to um, promote your plans. And I wanted to stay with humility and gratitude. Thank you for coming on our show. And thank you for taking the time out of your life to uh, discuss these things with us and reflect. And I certainly hope that on some level it was gratifying for you because it certainly was for both of us. It was. Yes, it was. And I, I am very discerning of what I will take time out of my life for because really my life is dedicated to my work and that's a full-time job. So if I don't consider it worth having a conversation, I wouldn't do it for its own sake. So I, I appreciated your intelligent discourse and, and your knowledge that you brought to it. So thank you for inviting me and many blessings to you and to your listeners. Likewise. Have a wonderful night. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you. We'll talk again. Yes, please. <laughs> See you. Okay. That was another great interview. Thank you again, Nicholas, for your time and your wisdom. Um, I think that went really well. Um, I, for one, am a little, uh, I wasn't sure what to expect exactly with Nicholas. He's a performer and he's got an online persona, which is sort of stoic, intense, dark, but in reality, he was actually really funny, warm, and down to earth. And, uh, his knowledge base was, was very impressive. Yeah, I was, I was really, I was really stunned by the depth and breadth of his experience. Um, Definitely a down-to-earth person and a relatable person, friendly person, interesting person. Uh, I greatly enjoyed our discussion with him. I learned some things. And I also really liked the, um, the narrative of his kind of spiritual journey, of his spiritual development as a magician, but also as a spiritual human being. I appreciated his humility as well. I mean... You know, you have somebody here who's actually had remarkable experiences and has had truly unusual, um, you know, life encounters with a wide range of people in several places around the world. And yet he's sitting there going, you know, I'm no better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and that was impressive to me. At the end of the day, you have a very devoted spiritual practitioner who's dedicated to the liberation, uh, not only of his own soul, but through the Bodhisattva vow of all sentient beings. And I think that's a real lesson for anybody, that it shows that anyone from any walk of life can approach spiritual awakening and uh, engender true fruit and true results. I'm excited to see where Nicholas goes next in his life because he's been so many places he's done so many things what, what what is he going to be doing in five years from now who freaking knows yeah and i think you were right when you had mentioned earlier about uh, he's very well balanced and flexible with his ideas uh, he's not uh chained to any sort of uh, rigid dogma so very interesting stuff uh ironically it's funny after we talked to him and i was thinking about it I don't think we really talked about sonic magic as much as we thought we were going to. Um, we just kind of kept going and the conversation was naturally flowing and we just went with it. Um, so we didn't go as deeply into sonic magic as, like I said, we thought we would. But 
but the listeners can always go and do some research on Nicholas on their own and kind of follow what he's doing. And he's got some really interesting YouTube videos where he, he talks about this a little bit more in depth. And additionally, we, I mean, I would very much like to have him back on the show and we can visit the topic in an even uh, more comprehensive way. If he's open to it, which I believe he is, as he said, uh, we, we can always go further. I mean, we could have continued this conversation for two more hours. I mean, there was so much that we talked about, but there was so much we could have talked about. And it was such a natural flowing conversation. And I, I think that's one more thing is we were dealing with somebody who is highly intelligent and an excellent conversationalist. And I think that's what makes him such a good um, performer and teacher as well. Uh, you really have that present. And I just wanted to mention here to anyone who's interesting, uh, interested that uh, Nicholas Streck, in addition to his magical life, spiritual life, um, in addition to his music, his poetry, his art, he's also a, uh, a scholar and uh, especially of, uh, he, he's one of maybe the world's foremost scholar of Charles, on Charles Manson. And he's doing a series of lectures in London. Um, He's doing, uh, there, it's a speaking tour titled, entitled the Charles Manson Conspiracy. He's going to be speaking in London on November 8th, in Bristol on November 19th, and in Manchester on November 20th. He's going to be going through some of the latest breakthroughs in the story. And um, in, uh, he's going to be at the Sway Bar in London on the 18th, at Hen and Chicken in Bristol, and at the Fitzgerald in Manchester. And, so anybody in England or London who, or in Europe who's interested in hearing him speak on um, this very intense and uh, mind-boggling um, topic can find him there. And please check out his new album, The Illusionist. I found it to be uh, a great listen, and uh, I, w I, I really enjoyed it. I listened to a couple of it several times in a row because I enjoyed them that much. So please look him up, check him out. Interesting person. He had mentioned to us that um, these UK talks, you can, you can get tickets. They're available via Funzing, F-U-N-Z-I-N-G, if you're interested. Um, that should probably be enough for this episode. I think it's a good, good point to wrap it up. Okay, you can find us, as always, on YouTube, iTunes, and everywhere else that you find podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook and our website, themagicianandthefool.podbean.com. And thank you for listening. We appreciate that. This is a labor of love. That We always appreciate your support, but we do not require it or expect it. We do this because we want to shed some light on corners of the esoteric and spiritual realm that are maybe not not given as much attention and we're hoping that this might help people who are seeking for inspiration guidance deepening of their practice or study uh, so hopefully this is performing that function okay on that note we will wrap it up thank you for listening <laughs> <laughs>